Welcome back to So What Does Judaism Say About? I'm Rabbi Rick Fox. With me as always is the well-connected Rabbi Mayer Beer. Rabbi Beer, how are you doing? Fantastic. They say you're well-connected. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. What does Judaism say about what caused the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem that we are mourning on the, on the day of Tisha B'Av? So, uh, you know... I've known you for long enough that whenever I get these innocent-sounding questions, you're alluding to something deep, the deep dive. <laughs> okay, so the Talmud lists various sins that caused the destruction of the temple, the first uh, temple. What does that even mean, the destruction of the temple? What is that? What, what, what? Temples builds, temples get destroyed, you know. Trump comes in with zoning permits, you know, buys it up, wants to turn it into a duplex or a multifamily, 78, 78 apartments go up. A lot of gold a lot, leaf. A lot of gold leaf, a lot of parking. You know, so, you know, there is the rising and the fall of different, what are they called? Empires, you know? So uh, the Roman Empire bought the lease to Jerusalem. They bought it through warfare. So, you know, the temple was destroyed, just like, you know, the Cincinnati Bengal Stadium was destroyed, and they built Pecor Stadium 15 years ago as a new, sta- you know, whatever it is. And, and let's just build a new one, because yeah. we own it now. Yeah, exactly. If we own no, it. No, seriously. Yeah. And then yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll build a new one, and, you know, we, maybe we'll even get the same contractors as Trump. Now that, you know, he's got some Jewish grandkids, we'll get them in there. You know, we'll put Kushner on the case and build it up again. Like, what, what does this even mean? The temple was destroyed. Empires rise, empires fall, buildings fall down, buildings go up. So the answer to this question, in short, is that the temple is a reflection of the spiritual level of the Jewish people. And in as much as the Jewish people's spiritual level was not lowered below a certain point, the temple is assumed to have, would not have gotten to, it is assumed the temple would not have gotten destroyed. So the fact that it was destroyed, we attribute to some of the shortcomings of those generations. And furthermore, the fact that we don't have a temple now is assumed to be because we're lacking some of those, you know, points that they were missing. That's interesting, right? So, so there's there's two sort of ironic is the wrong word, but there's two sort of backwards problems here with that. If we lost the temple in Jerusalem, which we need because we were not on a spiritually high enough level as Jewish people, then don't we need it even more when we're not on that level? Don't we need that connection even more when we're lowly? You think we need, we need the temple more when we're lowly? That's number one. Number two, if they, and we have a concept that the generations become more disconnected and lower spiritually, the further we get down the line, you know, further disconnected for, you know, more uh, material and really um, much more vapid. So if that's true, and we're thousands of years away, so how in the world is our meager generation going to bring it back if they couldn't bring it back and they were on they were giants in terms of spirituality? Those are the two questions. So this these are all really good focus points in trying to get like a broad picture of the temple and what it means to us, without going into the details of the actual function of the temple. And just and, kind of what we would need for you to have a temple to get to your point. And, 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 and just adjunct, you know, I grew up going to Rockdale Temple, okay, in Cincinnati, Ohio, which they called temple because there was a tenet of reformed Jewish faith that the temple, oh, we don't need that. We'll build the temple here wherever we are. The Berlin is the new Jerusalem. So they took a different approach, the, the reformers. Exactly. But very clear from traditional Jewish sources that this is actually not the approach. And to call that a temple is, is an insult to what this means or an assumption that somehow we've made good on it, when, as we'll delve into this, it doesn't seem that we have. So get to your second point about, you know, so you know, call it the prophetic era and different times in Jewish history where there were higher spiritual achievements. 
there has to be something, I think to answer this question that you're raising, something basic grassroots and like universally relatable throughout any generation that we could make good on those losses. Some kind of like, you know, constant in history that dipped below a certain level that if we focus on it, we can bring back that level to the point where we would appreciate the temple. And we don't have the temple if we don't appreciate the temple. And that is really, I think, the answer as to, you know, your point of, well, if we're, you know, spiritually not that advanced, wouldn't the temple help us? Yes, it would, but only in as much as we're going to appreciate it. And if we're missing some of these basic fundamentals, we're not going to have that appreciation and we're not going to have the temple either. So it's like what Joni Mitchell said in the song Big Yellow Taxi in 1970, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's a, she wasn't a prophet, but she was a decent songwriter. All right. So what was it that they were missing? So we have the Talmud writes in the first temple, they were missing the, the, the Jewish people, not necessarily every person, but there was widespread murder. There was sexual misconduct. There was idolatrous practices. And in the second temple, there was a social breakdown, sinaschina, baseless hatred. Now, the Talmud in Tractate Nadarim writes something which is very difficult to understand. The Talmud writes that um, the verse says, you know, who is the wise man who can understand this? That the wise men, the prophets, did not understand why the temple was destroyed until God wrote, uh, they abandoned my Torah. They didn't listen to my voice, which the Talmud says means they didn't make a blessing before they studied Torah. Now, if we have these terrible sins, practicing idolatry, a, a baseless hatred, a breakdown in society. Murder. Like, exactly. Like, what murder is this? one, murder two, murder three. It says that, right? Yeah. <laughs> so so why is it they didn't make a blessing before they studied Torah? That seems like a trivial technicality. And the, and the Talmud attributes this as the, as the downfall? As the root cause of it. The root cause of the other three. Yeah, okay. So the, the Ran, Rabbeinu Nisim, in his commentary on the Gemara Nadarim, writes that what the Talmud is referring to is they we're trying to see what fundamental, like what underlying principle caused society to degenerate to where it got to. What caused the baseless hatred? What caused the, you know, people indulging in things like murder and things, and, and you know... Murder one. And two and three. <laughs> and the answer to that was a disconnect from Torah. The disconnect from Torah was indicated from the fact that they didn't make a blessing before they studied Torah. And we'll we'll kind of break this down and, and get to the root of now were they really committing murder or are we are we is it akin to murder so there was actual murdering going on there, there were there were societal breakdowns people walking around pretending to be religious there's open miracles the temple they had the they had you know high levels of kashrut they were shomer shabbat and they were murdering people so once again i hope i hope that it wasn't as common as you know one could imagine but the fact that society had reached a point where these things were happening where it was being tolerated tolerated is itself a terrible thing yeah um, and it is clear that towards the end of both eras, the, the end of both temple eras, there were societal breakdowns. We'll discuss this a little bit. But these people were in the prophetic era, and by and large, the majority were, let's quote, religious, unquote. They followed yes. Jewish law. And, and even in the era of the second temple, there were splinter groups away from traditional Judaism, the Tzduken, the Baisusim, the Sadducees, other groups, there were problems within what we'll call the traditional community. Right. And factions. 
Correct. So, Splinters. Yes. Well, uh, let's let's give a little background on this idea of making a blessing before one re- one studies Torah. So the Talmud writes in Masachas Brachos that there are two blessings which are biblical in origin. Number one is Berchan Amazon, the grace after meals after one eats bread. And number two is Torah study. Making a blessing before one studies Torah, the Torah writes, When I will call to God's name, I will like bring greatness to God or I'll praise God greatly. There's a reference that one should, one is required to recite a blessing before one studies Torah. This is understood by many to be, nearly every major opinion assumes this to be a biblical mitzvah. So there's a mitzvah to make a blessing before one studies Torah. Now in the language of the blessing we use, there are, the middle of the three blessings is fascinating. It starts with the words, Vaharivna, make it sweet in our mouths. And the Lavush, one of the great, um, uh, halacha codifiers from the 1500s writes that that is a birchas hanenin. It's a blessing similar to what to the blessing that one makes before enjoying foods. You make a blessing before you have pleasure. The Torah should be a pleasurable experience, and we're asking God to sweeten it in our mouths that it should be like an enjoyable practice, an enjoyable experience. Besides the fact that we ask, you know we make a blessing on the mitzvah of the Torah and we thank God for the opportunity to study Torah. But we're also connecting that to. It's, it's supposed experience. to have a geschmack. It's supposed to be geschmack. Geschmack exactly. cholent. You have geschmack wine on Friday night. Your Torah should, should be. Gishmak. It should be fun and exciting and and sweet. So you know it's interesting because when you make a blessing on a food, I actually don't say God, please make this apple sweet. I just say, Blessed are you, God, who created the fruit of the tree, and then I eat the apple, or created the fruit of the vine, and then I drink the wine. So it's interesting that the, if the you said the lavush, if he's comparing this to a blessing over food, it's a it's a blessing on on enjoying something, pleasure pleasure from something. Shouldn't we just say thank you, Hashem, for making the Torah sweet and then enjoying it, or making the fruit of the Torah? So, so it's a funny language to to say. You know, it's almost like a prayer, sweeten it for me, as opposed to a declaration. I acknowledge this came from you. Yeah, and and possibly because without kind of getting that focus, it wouldn't necessarily be that. So. We need to kind of get ourselves into the mindset of it being an enjoyable thing. Because it's not food. Correct. It's food not, for the it, soul. Not, not an automatic pleasure. Food right. for the soul. But it right. is pleasurable. Correct. I can, I can I, attest. I am definitely on I board with you about that. So the Nitziv, in his uh, responsa, um, has a long essay about causation, particularly he's focusing on the second temple, the causation of sinaschina, this breakdown in society. And he says that this, what this was, there was different groups in Jerusalem and in other areas of the country which fought each other. And they said that you guys aren't religious enough, you guys are too religious, you guys are fanatics. And this caused a societal breakdown. And the Gemara and Gitan actually attributes some of these breakdowns which were direct links to how the Romans were able to successfully uh, break through in their siege on Jerusalem because of the infighting that didn't allow them to defend Jerusalem properly. Right, they they burned down the entire storehouses of food. Correct. Our, meaning, when I say they, Jewish people burned down other Jewish people's storehouses. It's, in, it's insane because of infighting. It's insane. And the Nitziv says that the source of this was a lack of respect for other people's religious values. You guys aren't religious enough. You guys are too religious. And the Nitziv says, "What is the cure to this? What is the cure to actual Jewish to actually creating Jewish unity?" Question: A lot of what is the big secret thinkers secret to Jewish unity? Think about what is the secret? We've been waiting hundred episodes for this, Rabbi Veer. Give it to us. Well, we'll do it right now. So We're the, solving all the world's problems right now. Well, at least the Jewish problems right now. So the Nitziv introduces this. He says that Yaakov, the patriarch Yaakov, says, "Vayazachar kafar aretz." He compares the Jewish people 
to dirt of the land. And he says what this means is the Jewish people are going to be in exile. And dirt takes two forms, either loose dust or it's clumped together as a rock. If the Jewish people form together as one cohesive group and you, you throw the rock into the ocean, nothing happens to the rock. It's tossed around, but the rock stays together. But if it's dust thrown into the water, so to speak, of being of the exile, then it's scattered and it loses any any shape or form. Right. If a pile of dust, it's a pile. Throw it into water, it just Dissipates. disappears. Exactly. But if it's a rock, if it's stuck together, nothing can really can really can really break it apart. In fact, it might even get smooth. Ooh, you're, you're making this deep. Yeah. And what is the trick to this? The Nitziv says that the universal kind of adhesive of the Jewish people is the Torah. And he says when Jewish people study Torah together, they're actually connecting at their essence. When Jewish people study together, they're able to see why you came to that perspective and I came to this perspective. We're able to make our perspectives not that much different because we realize we're sourcing everything from the same place. Other benefits, he says there are a lot of well-meaning people who come up with ridiculous ideas in their well-meaning desire to make the world a better place, but when they actually have a robust connection to Jewish thought, that gets tempered by the wisdom of the Torah into something that is more mainstream. It allows, he says, less religious people to see that more religious people are not fanatics. This is coming from an intellectual source. People are able to see, you know, my kind of more worldly you know, perspective and your more insular perspective because we're both basing this on genuine Torah understandings. And what about the religious people? Seeing the less religious people, how does that change? So I, 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 so the Nativ says that when you see that your view is, you know, also coming from a genuine desire to understand the Torah and to incorporate the Torah, and I see you do have a genuine connection to it, I'll see that, you know, you're not this person with kind of foreign beliefs, even if your ideas don't match up mine. So as an example, like I mentioned, just, you know, insular or, or kind of more worldly communities. But if I see that your worldly approach, and I'm a kind of an insular guy, is your way of expressing your Torah wisdom, your Torah values, and we're coming from the same source, we really are the same thing, expressed maybe with different personalities. But I can see that when we study together. He says there's nothing that unites the Jewish people more than group studying and people having a stronger connection to the Torah. That's beautiful. And and if that's true, which of course it must be because the Nitziv just said that, right? So if that's true, then what was going on behind those walls of the siege Jerusalem? And why does the Talmud say it was the blessing of the Torah that they didn't say and not they didn't study Torah together, you know, heart to heart? Or they didn't listen to each other's perspectives. Like, why does it, why does it hint to it in that more obscure way? Okay, so the Chassam Sofer has a, a very, you know, kind of deep understanding of how Torah study has to be done properly for this to happen. And he says the following: There's two ways one can view the Torah. One can view it as a preparatory, you know, kind of necessary preliminary step before observance. I study so I know how to observe. Or you can say that Torah itself is a mitzvah. So that means that, say, you know, I'm not a Kohen and there's no temple. I'm never going to perform sacrifices. So why study those sections of the Talmud? Or I can say there's a value to every piece of wisdom in the Torah and it's valuable in its own right, not as a preparation for direct observance, but it's valuable because one needs to study to understand. The difference between those two approaches is the difference on if you'd make a blessing on it. Because a blessing is made on a mitzvah, not a preparation for a mitzvah. If the Torah is a self-contained mitzvah, studying for its own sake is the most valuable thing a Jewish good person can do, then you make a blessing on it. But if Torah study is simply a means to observance, 
the blessing is on the observance, not on the Torah. And this lack of appreciation of what Torah is eventually caused all these problems. The social breakdown in the second temple, the observance breakdown in the first temple. If people are disconnected from the wisdom of the Torah because they're not just involved in Torah study to grow as a Jewish person, but it's just like, it's a it's kind of something you need to do. How are you going to observe Shabbat if you don't know what the rules are? But that attitude also hurts your observance because now it's just a bunch of rules. Instead of, no, I study about Shabbat because I now appreciate it more. Now we'll come to enjoy it more. I'll now come to see an added, an added depth in the Shabbat, and that's why I study it. And the studying itself is a religious activity, and I'm making a blessing. I'm asking God, sweeten it in my mouth, Baharavna, you know, in our mouths, in our children's mouths. I have this recognition that I need to understand Judaism. I need to understand Judaism as part of a community. We need to understand each other's Judaism through study. We'll be more interconnected. We'll have a better appreciation for everything. And these kind of like really catastrophic breakdowns won't occur. So what was going on behind the walls in Jerusalem? Seemingly they were disconnected from this value. This like elemental, you need to study for, t- for study's sake, was something that, that was missing. And, and therefore, they were these factioned off different groups, right. and they were they had their own bate midrashim. They were learning probably, by themselves, probably too focused on politics and not on study. That's so interesting. Because if we're just studying politics here, politics there, you know, at the end of the day, we're the same thing. When you're so focused on the colors of your political party's, you know, el, uh, you know, coat of arms or something, and uh, you know, we're blue, you're red, and everything in Judaism becomes politicized. So you have these breakdowns. So how does this how does this reveal itself on Tisha B'Av itself? On Tisha B'Av, it's forbidden to study Torah. You're not allowed to study Torah precisely because Torah is meant to be sweet, meant to be exciting, meant to be fun. And, and Tisha B'Av is a sad, lonely day. And therefore, we are forbidden to learn Torah, at least until the midpoint of the day when the heaviness of the day is behind us. True or false? So, when, you know, I could, answer, I could answer the question by saying that precisely that point, if we're recognizing that Torah is the source of our happiness and is a direct you know, wonderful thing for a Jewish person to do, and we won't do it on a day of mourning, that I'll come to that realization. If I Meaning it's more myself, powerful to hold it back than to have a massive day of Torah learning where we all come together right, as one. You could study sad things. You could study the book of Eicha. You could study like the, the portions of the Talmud that talk about the destruction. So it's not like you have to be disconnected completely, but we're, there's nothing that says this is a, a, a source of our happiness and our joy than not doing it on, our, on the saddest day of the year. And then, and then, when is the appropriate time to come together and study? Presumably, as soon as Tisha B'av is over, Tisha B'av, right? We got to get on it. We do. So, I, I just want to end off with one point. This is from the Maral. The Maral writes that another point in them abandoning the Torah, not blessing it, and not making a blessing on Torah study, is the last blessing of the Torah study is us thanking God for giving us the Torah. And when we realize that the giving of the Torah was God expressing His love for the Jewish people. And we can feel that love through Torah study, through the joy of understanding, through the happiness that comes from having a depth to Jewish, you know, practices, from having a depth to, you know, in, in, in our connection to Jewish philosophy and beliefs. When we feel that connection, we're also far less likely as individuals to feel negatively about any parts of Judaism and not want to be, and not want to be connected to them. If we feel like kind of the love that God put into the Torah, Bachar Banu, Hashem chose us. He gave us us. It's a gift. Um, when we say that and we feel that, we have a connection 
to the Torah that is stronger that will not hopefully allow it to reach any kind of diminishment like happened in those times. And the Mara writes that saying the blessings, mouthing the words, isn't, isn't you know, what did they say the words of the blessing or not say the words of the blessing? Sure, they said it. They yeah, said the words, yeah. but they didn't feel that. And without introducing those feelings into Torah study, getting back to your point before, Vaharavna, we're asking it to be sweet. If we mean that when we say that, we're recognizing that there's something here that we need to focus on that won't just happen without a little bit of that focus. When we put that focus in, we're going to have a connection that's much richer and deeper. And there's a beautiful blessing, a beautiful prayer on the inside fold of every piece of every, every Talmud that's printed. There's a Yehiratza in there that was written. You know, we've just talked about blessings in the Torah, connecting it back, sweetening it God for me. But in terms of, in terms of, uh, in terms of, um, what about your learning partner? What about, uh, you know, how we're going to relate to other people? So this blessing says like this, Yiratzo, may it be your will, Hashem, my God, that a mishap not come about through me and may not stumble in a matter of law and cause my colleagues to rejoice over me, meaning they shouldn't make fun of me. And may I not say regarding something which is um, tame, which is impure, this tar is pure, and not regarding something which is tar, this tame, not something that is impure, pure. And may my colleagues not stumble, may my friends not stumble in a matter of law, and I should make fun of them. Right, so there, there is a this this hiratzon that was added when when was this added? This is found on the Talmud. Most of this text is taken from the Talmud. Like that's gorgeous, and it's saying that when I sit down to learn and I'm sitting across from somebody, you know, there could be a competitive aspect. I want to be right. I want to get into it, and, and that there could be almost a, 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 a fun, a geschmack in that also the competitive aspect. But we have to remember if this is true, which it is, we have to be respectful of other people. We don't want to make fun of anybody. We don't we don't want anybody to make fun of us. So it's a beautiful thing to practice. This Yihiratso that we're that we're praying to God, like you're saying, biblically, not only do we have to make sure the Torah is sweet, but also to be sensitive to our learning partner that they have a different perspective and not to make fun of them and that they shouldn't make fun of us. Yeah, so I'll just add in one more point. So you're saying you're 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 bringing up this prayer, which gets into the social aspect of the Torah, getting into this the Smaral's point of the connection to God. There's a blessing found in the Talmud that if you see like an epic Jewish scholar, uh, one makes a blessing. That God, like, uh, the word chalak is a hard word to translate. He didn't give, but he gave a piece of himself to those that fear him. Like, you feel that, like, this is a piece of God. It's separated from him. It's separated from him to you. And and you have it. Like, you have a piece of God, the Vilna Gon says. When you can feel that in the Torah, you're going to have a different relationship with it. This is a, you know, the ultimate bond both between us and God and us and the other 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 Jews. And when one can have this depth of an appreciation of Torah study, one can hopefully assume that kind of the spiraling out of control that happened in the the era of the destruction of the first and second temples won't happen. May we see it rebuilt speedily in our days. Amen. Amen.